Till the Whole World Hears is our podcast of mission stories from across the globe, told by members in WEC UK and Ireland. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I am your host, Martha, and together we'll learn more about what mission can look like. It can be challenging to live for Christ in the day-to-day, but hearing from others can inspire us to persevere exactly where God has placed us. Thank you for joining, and I hope you enjoy hearing these conversations. This week I spoke with Wilf and Pat. When were you in Burkina Faso together, and how long was that for? That would have been from 1976 to 1991. What was your journey into mission before you went out together? So what took you both into desiring to be missionaries in the first place? I became a Christian in my second year at Murray House College of Education. From the CU, 20 of us decided to go to Cochreggan for a holiday. Now, WEC had a property there, a big big holiday house, and they had a whole summer of conferences. They were full of all kinds of activity, plus Bible teaching, plus missionary input. And in that, I thought I reached heaven, and the Lord very clearly called me to mission at that stage. I eventually went to the WEC Training College in Glasgow, where I eventually met Will. Felt a call perhaps to join WEC and then felt it might be North Africa. Eventually the Lord indicated that I should learn French, so I went to Switzerland and French, and thereafter the rest followed. So I came to the Lord in Inverness in 1958 after a tragic accident that claimed the lives of my mum, dad, brother and auntie. And uh, I was taken under the care of the Inverness YMCA, spent years there growing as a Christian, being introduced regularly to missionaries, particularly ones that came from WEC. And I was deeply influenced by what they said, what they talked about, what they showed us. And I great interest in mission grew up to the extent that I went and spent time with OM in France. And when I came back to the UK, I very shortly afterwards went as a young missionary to Burkina Faso. May I just say at that point that I was absolutely hopeless at languages, and yet the Lord called me to learn French, and I speak. I speak bad French fluently. Wilf speaks good French fluently. No. <laughs> Wilf can correct all your bad French, Pat, and you can get the conversation rolling. <laughs> oh, yes, always. What was your role then, or your roles, I guess, in the mission work you were doing? My main role was pastoring. We took over a church in the village of Malba, and I was responsible for the preaching every Sunday and taking teams out evangelising. And the two things that I added on was that I'd forgotten. I had to conduct marriages. And the other one I wrote down was baptismal services, because they were always conducted in the local river. And uh, you had to be careful what time of the year you did them. Otherwise, you might lose your client in the flood. So you had to keep a good hold of the person you were baptizing. What about yourself, Pat? Can I just add there that because Wilf doesn't swim, I used to be standing on the bank when Wilf and a 
elder who was with them in the process of baptizing and I would be praying, first of all, that there weren't any nasties in the water, you know, like crocodiles or snakes or whatever, but also that he wouldn't in any way lose his feet. So it was a kind of a story. You, you were his intercessor during the during the Baptist ceremony. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, for myself, well, I was a wife and a mother and a teacher. My main role really was literacy work. So we were amongst this group that had been reached and was being reached, but most of the people did could not read or write. And Birifer was not yet written. So we were at, at an exciting time when Birifer was being written. However, after our first term, about 1980, I think it was, Burkina Faso decided as a country to make a universal Burkina Faso alphabet. And it was excellent as a te- as an educationalist. I thought it was amazing. And I, I, I wish it would be done elsewhere as well, because they made sure that the alphabet had a symbol for every sound. As a primary teacher, and teachers know when they teach children at school, they have to learn that sometimes an ah doesn't say ah. If it's got an e at the end, it says a, and so on and so forth, all of them. But in Burkina, with the Burkina alphabet, every symbol exactly said the same thing. So you could pick up a document written in, written in Fulani or in Lobi or in Mori or whatever, and you could read it. And it would be understandable because your pronunciation would be great. So it was thrilling. In a sentence, if you can, could you tell us about a cultural difference? I don't think I can do it in a sentence. <laughs> but my first two and a half years, I was with an Irish couple. I wasn't part of their family, so their family went away on holiday. And I was left on my own in the village. And one day this young lady came and offered me a handful of peanuts. I have never been able to eat peanuts because I have an allergy. And uh, I just signaled to her, I thanked her and said, no, thank you. And she turned away and walked away in high dungeon. And I wondered, what was that all about? So I just dismissed it. And when the couple of the family came back, I told the husband what had happened. And he turned as white as a sheet. And he said, what did you do with the peanuts? I said, I didn't do anything with them. He said, did you know, do you know what that woman was doing? And I said, no. She was proposing marriage to you, and you refused. No wonder she went away in high dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yes. I was glad to have had an allergy against peanuts, otherwise who knows? (laughs) I'd have married. You would have accidentally accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. The story that I thought of links back to the language we learned before, and uh, we were visiting a a village in the bush. This was when we were down in another village. We were very delighted to see this old man. And when I saw him, I wanted to say, Samuel, my heart is full of joy to see you, because that's how you say it in Birifer. But actually, what I said was, my heart is full of hens. The word for joy is noir. The word for hens is noir. Wow, they're so similar. (laughs) 
That's brilliant. Needless to say, there was great mirth. Can you think of an example of an answer to prayer during your time in mission? We went back to the village of Malva, and it was the time that the millet and the maize was growing. Now, millet and maize grows maybe 10, 12 feet. So in the dry season, you can see. But once the millet's up, you can't see anything, everything, and every bit of space is used to cultivate because this is food. So we got back to Malba and all the maize and all the millet was high. We realized that the only place that was vacant for funerals was right at the back of our house because that was the only place that hadn't been cultivated. And when we got back, there was a heathen funeral just in the midst going on. Now, heathen funerals, the people that we worked with were animists. So it was three nights and there would be dancing and drums and sacrifices. And of course, the noise went on all night and we couldn't sleep. And it was, it was just awful. And that morning, I was at Psalm 125 that morning and I read it. And verse three of Psalm 125 says, the scepter of the wicked shall not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. So after we had breakfast time together, and I said to the boys and to Rope, and I said, God is going to do something about this today. Little later on, a man came to the door, and we went out and we greeted him, and he says, I just came to tell you that God has answered prayer. Oh, how has he answered prayer, he asked. He said, well, you know how I've been looking for land and he says, I've at last managed to get land. So we were rejoiced with him because we'd been praying. He said, where's the land, Sheba? He says, oh, it's that bit there. And he pointed to where the, the funerals were going on. So Sheba had bought that land, and so they couldn't have funerals anymore on it because it was his land. And so he eventually built his house. And there he was as a neighbor. Did you have a time where you were quite scared and you felt really fearful in that kind of context and culture? And how did you respond to that? Or how did you seek faith through that situation? I think there were several times when that would have been the case. And every so often amongst the Burrafa people, they had tribal initiation ceremonies. And these were times when evil and satanic worship were very, very obvious right around the village. And there was a sense of apprehension in the atmosphere, which made Christian work very, very difficult. And there were times when we were frightened, and it was difficult really to do the work that we were there to do. And we got some of the Christians together, and we prayed in the church for the Lord's victory, and that oppression lifted, and God undertook. And I think after we had prayed along with the Christians and really had claimed the Lord's victory, things were much, much better after that. We'll answer to prayer. The thing is that you realize that you, even two of you together, you cannot manage. So we, as Wilf has said, we, we called on the believers that were there in the street. And the fact that people were praying at home 
at that stage, there were a lot of churches in Scotland that had a prayer meeting on a Saturday night. We used to know when people would pray. And all of this that just shows it was absolutely nothing to do what we did or didn't do. It was all of the Lord. And you go out as a young missionary and think, right, I'm going to do it. I'll get this sorted. I can do it. I'm this, I'm this, and the next thing. And the Lord just, through the years, just shows you, no, you can't. You can't do it. You know, it, it, it's all of him. And even at this great age that we're at now, we're still learning. Wolf doesn't think he's at that great age. Not in here, so. <laughs> <laughs> there was an occasion when I was absolutely terrified. We were due to go home and there'd been a coup d'etat. And on the entrance to Wagga, we were actually stopped at gunpoint. And the soldier got us to open up the boot of the car. And he was with point of his rifle, he was saying, what's in that, what's in that? The boys were little, and it was extremely, it was very, very scary. Usually with the Birifers, you could talk to them and ask about their wives, their children. But no, there was nothing, and it was, oh, it was scary. But we managed to get in, and we stayed in the mission guest house. And then the big thing was we were due to fly out the next day, and we thought, we're not going to get out. And that morning I read Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace are not of evil to give you an expected end. That's in the AV. And I read that and I thought, what's my expected end for today? To arrive in Paris, get the other plane and arrive in Edinburgh. And the Lord said, that's what's going to happen. And that did. So God's word is something that comes with realism and reality. How did you find being parents? Did you ever have doubts about that, about your kids being in a dangerous situation, or did you just go for it and not, not look back? We had our apprehensions, I would have to say, because you wondered how safe were these young lives in this kind of precarious situation that we were in, especially when there was political turmoil in the country. But every time the Lord's presence was very real, there was never an occasion when we doubted that the Lord had deserted us or had left us on our own. We knew, according to his promise, I am with you always. And we, we, we never really doubted that. We doubted it a little, but then God's word dispelled those doubts. And we had that confidence that the Lord would only do that which was right. And he did. And we were saying, when people would say to us, I don't know how you can take children back to that country. And they would say, quite often they would say that, well-meaning, and we, we appreciated their concern. Then as my mother got older, they would say, how can you leave your mother? And our answer was very often, the safest place to be is God's will for you. So if it's the safest place for me to be, there, for Wolf to be there, for our children to be in that environment. If that is God's will, that's the best place to be. And my mother has the assurance of knowing that we are in his right place. And she was safe too, because she had not stood in the way. We went always with her blessing. And so she 
was in the safest place as well. And that's a huge reassurance. If you could go back in time, uh, what would you tell your 20-something self about mission? I think one of the things that I would say is that you do not need to be apprehensive. If God calls you, God will go with you. You have promises upon promises that my presence shall go with thee and I will give you peace. He'll go ahead. He'll prepare the way. You do not need to worry because God's promises will never be broken and he will always be there. Amen. Adding on to that, it's not about what we can do, what I can do, what anybody can do. Mission is not about what I can do. It's what God wants to do for you and through you. That perspective is so key. I think about it in reference to ministry as well, not just being a pastor, but just being involved in ministering in general. You can burn out if you think that it's all what you're supposed to do, rather than seeing God is at work and that we're we're coming under what he's already about and being a part of that. Is there anything different as advice that you would give to a younger person who is thinking about mission or is exploring the possibility that they might be called into mission? Yes, I would say if you sense that God is calling you into his work, be obedient and go because he will go with you. Anything to add, Pat? Not really. I mean, if God's calling you for your life, for who you will marry or who you will not marry, where you will live or where you will not live, what job you will do, the whole thing is finding out God's will. And underwriting and overriding all of that is Jesus' last words to us are, I've saved you. I'm with you always. But now you've got a job to do. And when I was first converted, the thing that really, really excited me was you had a job. We've got something to do for Jesus. You know, whatever you did. And if somehow in your life you can be a means of making other, letting other people know about the Lord Jesus, wow, there's nothing better. And so if, as well said, if you sense God is calling you into the particular thing that is mission, we're all missionaries, whatever we're doing, lawyers, teachers, uh, nurses, Everybody, whatever God calls you to do, you're doing it for him. But if it's that special calling to set yourself apart for a particular ministry, go for it. Great. Thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. It was really interesting to hear your stories. We hope you enjoyed Till the Whole World Hears. If you found this helpful, please write a review. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to know more about WEC UK and Ireland, you can visit our website or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Links are in the description. Join us next time to hear more about what living as a missionary is like. Thanks for sharing our podcast and blessings on your week. Goodbye.